Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In his letter to the Romans, St. Paul explains that God's people are held up as an example of sin, not so that sin is excused or justified, but as a cautionary tale codified in the story of Scripture as an example to all peoples of how not to behave. The parallel teaching, also found in St. Paul's exegesis of the Old Testament, is the non-example of Abraham's trust in God's commandment. Not in his righteous deeds, ideas, or words about God. Paul points instead specifically to his trust in God's directive, as the Apostle says, his faith. Abraham trusted and it was added to him as righteousness. Likewise, Simeon trusted the command of his master and remained faithful to the end according to the word of the Lord. By imitating the obedience of Abraham, Simeon was shown to be a true child of the same father through whom the Torah, not Israel, was lifted up as a light to enlighten the Gentiles. Luke explains that this light is the true glory of Israel. Much to Mary's sorrow, it looks nothing like human glory and comes at a high cost. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 27 to 32. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 466 of the Bible as Literature podcast. I have never met a mother or a father who is amazed at the things that people say about their child. People expect everyone else to be amazed about their baby. They think their child is the most beautiful child, the most stunning, the most intelligent, the most exceptional. Everybody thinks their child is special. So it jumped out at me today, Rich, when we were first looking at this passage that the mother and father of Jesus are amazed that people are saying amazing things about their kid. They just went in to do their little sacrifice, and this is quite a speech, this cosmic big pronouncement about what's supposed to happen. Now, these people, Joseph and his mother, should have known that something is going to happen. We've had all of chapter one and the beginning of chapter two to realize that there's something particular about this kid. They had to name it what they were going to name it. It was going to be conceived the way it was going to be conceived. I'm amazed 
actually, that they're still amazed after all these things that have happened so far. They are evidently ordinary parents with a very extraordinary child, but not an extraordinary child the way that you think of it, not an extraordinary child as the way you explained it, Father, in that, oh, my child is special. This is not a special child. This is a child whose destiny is hard to wrap your head around. Trying to understand what's going to become of this child, that's certainly going to be a challenge for these parents and for anyone who sees what comes of Jesus in the end. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. In a way, had they been doing Bible study, which is a reasonable expectation of anyone who considers themselves a son or a daughter of Israel in late antiquity, they wouldn't be amazed. Note, if we are careful in hearing this text, it doesn't say that they were amazed, as you said, about their son. They were amazed at the things being said about him, but those things are written. So to the extent that Simeon, or as we've been pronouncing it in an exaggerated way to stress the transliteration, Simeon, to the extent that he was completely on board, unsurprised, and in fact relieved because he could finally take a break from his station and go to his death as a good and faithful servant, a good and faithful slave of the gospel. I mean, he wasn't amazed. He was like, oh, thank God it's finally happened. It's finally come to pass. They're amazed. They shouldn't be. They should be knowledgeable. Especially when one considers that Mary represents an evangelized community. So there's a little bit of tension in the amazement, as always, Rich. Those who are knowledgeable in the content of the gospel are rarely amazed. It's not a good sign when someone who is knowledgeable in Scripture is scandalized when something bad happens. If you are scandalized, it means that there's some part of you that is unfamiliar with your own wickedness because you have not been searched out by Scripture. If you truly understand how you are viewed by Scripture, you can't be scandalized by sin. If you are truly familiar with the content of Scripture, you can't be amazed by what Scripture is saying and how it's being applied to Jesus and the story. From Matthew and Mark, we are trained to be suspicious of the people who are marveling. In Matthew and Mark, it tends to be the crowds that are marveling, and we always were talking about how they were missing the point. They were always noticing the fireworks show, but weren't listening to the message. They weren't learning. There was someone there who was very erudite, who knew of Scripture, who knew what he was talking about, and they were deciding whether to judge him based on his delivery. And boy, he delivered in a really interesting way. However, no one was actually listening to what he was saying. Here, this is Joseph and his mother. They know that something is up. So I'm interested in seeing, is Luke going to be using this word in a different way than elsewhere? So one thing I noticed about your translation, Father, is as those things that were being said about him. In Greek, technically, is the things that were said about him. 
were being said about him means that they were still going on. Whereas were said about them means completely said. And I think that's the important point that the author is trying to convey in Greek that didn't make it into that translation is it's in particular these words that were said. What Simeon said is what they were marveling at. Not just people were saying amazing things and Simeon just happens to have said some of them. No, it's these words, this destiny that Simeon lays out for Jesus and how he's going to be living out this story. What are the actions he's going to be playing out? This is all foreshadowing. I don't want to say predicting because then people think it's like something happening. This is foreshadowing of what's going to happen later on in the book. As we read through the book, we have to see what is this pointing at? What is this salvation? What is the salvation that was prepared? What is this light? What is this glory? What do those things mean over the course of this story? I mean, in Hebrews, you and I were talking before, in Hebrews, there's a very precise exposition of why Jesus was glorified. It was because he was obedient. So he was created lower than the angels so that he could be glorified later on. But he was also the Son, so he had an inherent kind of glory. That's what Hebrews is wrestling with, and it's showing that ultimately it is about his obedience. Jesus was obedient, and that was the way that he was glorified, and Abraham is used as another example of this later on in the book. The one who is obedient is the one who's glorified. This is the glory of Israel. If one is obedient, one is Israel. If one is Israel, one is glorified. And it is a light to the nations, to the Gentiles, because they can see what path they have to walk in order to receive this glorification. Jesus is not the example. If you follow Jesus, if you do what Jesus does, then you're correct. No, that's not what it is. Jesus is following the law that you already have correctly. So he is the example of how one follows the law, but he is not the example that the hearers of the law are supposed to follow. The hearer of the law follows the law, not Jesus, in the story. So basically you hear what Jesus does and what obedience means, and this is what one is to exemplify. One doesn't exemplify Jesus, one exemplifies obedience in the law. Here we have Joseph and his mother saying, what is this all about? Because even they, at this point, don't understand what it means to be obedient to the law. So far, they are obedient, but it's been easy. All they had to do was sacrifice a couple birds. It becomes more difficult later on down the road, and they're going to have to exemplify obedience to law in different ways. Their amazement at what the implication of these words are, even they don't know at this point in the story, but we know because we read ahead. They should know the implication that's what I keep coming back to. It's not a surprise. And this is critical for our listeners to really hear and understand. The New Testament does not present new information. It's a new deal. It's not a new teaching. That is the best way to explain this expression, this phrase, New Testament. It is a new deal. It is not a new teaching. The New Deal 
is that what was taught previously is now finally contractually opened up to everybody. That is the role that Jesus plays in the story. He is the guy that opens it up to everybody. He carries it out and distributes it to everybody. But what is being distributed is what was already known that goes against the grain of what everybody believes because in our natural tendency towards exceptionalism, we want to believe we have something everybody else doesn't have and we are special. That's why we think our kids are special, our flag is special, our group is special. Our testament is special, but it's not our testament. It's God's new deal with the nations. We have to submit to this fact. Once you grasp this, then you can come back to this critical point that the parents of Jesus should have known and understood. And that's the piece that I'm hitting on, Richard, because they had access to the same scrolls that Simeon had access to. Everybody in Israel had access to the same scrolls. Nothing was hidden. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed. Couple of quick points. The word child doesn't appear in this sentence. It's added by translators. In the Greek, the literal translation is, behold this, referring to the famous one, this one, referring back to him, as in the most recently referred to pronoun. So people who are translating say, oh, they must be referring to Jesus. He's the him. And then they put the word child in. But there's no word child in the Greek. So behold, this one is appointed for the fallen rise of many in Israel. And the word rise is literally resurrection in the Greek. And this notion of the sign to be opposed alludes to, of course, the stumbling block of the gospel, which is the proclamation of the cross, the teaching of the cross, which is foolishness to people who are interested in philosophy and a stumbling block to people who are interested in empire, temple, king, and city. But there it is, Rich. Simeon, who is familiar with the gospel, familiar with scripture in totality, is now evangelizing Mary again. Mary is repeatedly evangelized in Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2. Yeah, that's significant that she is the one being evangelized. This word keeps getting preached to her so that she would understand the significance of what's going on. This is the grace that she's receiving in this because, yeah, she could have known this, but this is what she's being taught explicitly in the text. 
And this passage here, the child is set for the fall and rise. It, by the way, what you were saying about the child being added, I like in the King James because when they add words like that, they put it in italics so the reader can see when words have been added. Anyway, back to the original point. So behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel and for a sign which shall be spoken against. The word you had there was opposed, and in Greek it's antilegomenon, which anti-legos, spoke is the word against, so spoken against. This follows again what I was saying about Hebrews, is his obedience shows that he's glorified. But to the eye, he is humiliated, not glorified, because of his obedience. This is the fall and the rise. Do you want to be obedient? Because it's going to look like this, and this is what you're going to have to measure up to this level of obedience, who is going to be able to withstand the level of pressure it takes to be obedient. And the sign that shall be spoken against, this is the sign that's spoken against. He is glorified. Well, is he really glorified? Oh, maybe his disciples came and stole his body in the middle of the night. He wasn't really glorified. Only his disciples said he was glorified. The sign that's spoken against is that the one who's obedient, even if he dies on a cross, will be glorified. That's the sign. And the fall is that people just can't live up to that level of obedience. They can't really believe in their actions, in their feet, in their hands. They can't trust that God actually has Jesus' back, that Jesus actually is going to be glorified. So the rise and the fall, this is the test. If you are held to this standard of obedience, can you do it? Can you stand up to it? And the answer for everyone is no. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. The sword, of course, is the sword of the gospel. More specifically, I say the sword of the gospel, but that's technically incorrect. It is the sword of the spirit wielded by Paul in the gospel. That is the sword that pertains to the preaching of the cross referred to in the previous verse. This is the content of the teaching that will pierce even Mary's life. I don't like the translation soul because when you hear the word soul in English, which is the translation of psyche, you jump to your platonic use of the term in contemporary English language. But the best way to think about the word is self, life, which relates to breath, to throat. It's more visceral, more personal, as it pertains to your biological subsistence as a human being, as a mammal. Mary's life is going to be deeply affected, threatened by the sword of the teaching of Scripture. Why? So that there would be an apocalypsis. Earlier we heard this. You see how deadly translations are, Rich. That's the second time in this section we've encountered the word revealed, but it's the first time we've encountered the word apocalypse. Here, 
because of Scripture, there is an uncovering, an apocalypsis. There's going to be an opposition, a confrontation because of the teaching. There is going to be violence because of the teaching. It's going to cause injury to the church whom Mary represents. It's going to affect her personally so that there would be an uncovering of people's thoughts, a judgment, a calling to account of many hearts. So there's this tension. You have this word thoughts, and it's actually want to just mention the Greek word because it pertains or relates to the modern English word dialogue, which we critiqued at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, Rich. Dialogismi, this exchange of human words, thoughts, these human words and the exchange of human words are going to be exposed through Jesus. There's going to be an opposition. There is going to be conflict. The sword of the teaching is going to cause an uncovering. It's going to cause pain for Mary, who represents the body politic of the church. And there's going to be a judgment. And the measuring stick against which these human thoughts are going to be judged is, of course, the gospel that Simeon gave his life for. The sword is piercing the very life, the very person of Mary. She's going to have to see the implications of these words that she supposedly knows. She has to see what obedience really means when she looks at that cross with her son on it. That on the one hand, who wants to see their child suffer in such a way, but who wants to see their child be disobedient and apostatize against the very law that she holds dear? She can't win. She can't win, just like Jesus can't win. This is the high cost of following this scripture, of following this word. And the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. It's very easy, because you can say, I believe in God, I trust in God, but what are you really thinking? What's really in your heart? Are you taking care of the poor? Are you following what scripture says? Are you looking out for yourself, or are you looking out for others? It's pretty easy to see. Do your actions follow somebody who is dedicated to the teaching of Scripture or the one who's dedicated to preserving one's own ego? It's pretty easy to see what the thoughts of your heart are by seeing what happens when you act, because that's what's motivating you. So we know what the thoughts of Jesus were because he was willing to be obedient all the way to the end. That was his will. So we know that it was in line with his father, his father's commandment with his law. This is really the high cost. When I was teaching Hebrews earlier today, it's painful. It's painful to see. And it's so painful that the author even breaks. And he's like, don't worry, my dears. I recognize you've done some good things in spite of what I'm saying. <laughs> like, he recognized how mean it sounds. He's like, you do some things and God would be unjust if he didn't recognize that occasionally you do things correctly. Like, he 
actually tries to soften his own blow a little bit because it's so harsh, okay? And here we're dealing with a gospel. We're dealing with Jesus, who is dealing with the harshest outcome of obedience, and that's being nailed to the cross. And the second worst is what Mary has to behold with her own eyes. This is how the word is going to strike through Mary's being, through her psyche. The sword is going to strike through her psyche when she sees what the implication of obedience really is in the most painful of ways. Already from chapter two, we have to realize as the listener, this commandment is not for the faint-hearted. Simeon got off easy. He just had to sit and wait to give the speech to be obedient. But when taken to its fullest extreme, it ends up on the cross. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.